This morning's Old Testament scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 26, verses 12 through 35. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names of his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring and my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahazath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way. And they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The New Testament reading is found in Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. Kim Lane and Paul Tripp wrote a book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. In it they write, At some point, Each of us will become discouraged and disappointed with a relationship. 
The health and maturity of a relationship are not measured by an absence of problems, but the way, by the way, the inevitable problems are handled. From birth to death, we are sinners living with other sinners. Even in times of peace, you must be vigilant regarding the way your relationships can be hijacked by the underlying desires of our hearts. Another word for that is your idols, which are constantly shifting. Oh man, is that ever Isaac's experience in our passage for today. We're continuing to press into our study in the book of beginnings. First book of the Bible, Genesis. He just moves from one conflict to another to another in this passage. Neighbors, government, finally extended family. Few burdens in life create more wear and tear than conflict in relationships. And that's evident in chapter 26, 12 to 35. It can't be missed. But still not more important than another theme that runs throughout all of Genesis. We've said it over and over again that of blessing. Sometimes blessing that even triggers conflict. Isaac enjoyed enormous blessing. Even though, and you remember this if you were here last week, in the first 11 verses, he lied about his wife, but came out of that somehow with a safety proclamation from Ambimelech saying, touch these people and you die. They had safe conduct for their entire sojourning in Gerar. From that point here in verse 12 and on, the writer documents for us the enormous blessing that came to Isaac in this foreign land. He prospers materially, so much so that Abimelech throws him out of the territory in the 16th verse. Go away from us. You're much mightier than me. Shades of Exodus 1-9. God's people in Egyptian slavery who had prospered and multiplied. Every well that Isaac uncovers and or digs erupts with water. A few resources, no resources more important to a rich herdsman than water for his flocks. And he prospers relationally. Abimelech finally comes to his senses toward the end of this story and reapproaches Isaac, saying in verse 29, you are blessed by God. And then the men strike water in another well in verse 32. Reminds me of that old hymn I used to sing when I first became a believer. There will be showers of blessing. But all this blessing occurs in Isaac's life with the burdens, especially of recurring conflict, 
listen to this. Conflict fueled by envy, verse 14. Mistreatment, verse 16. Water rights with the wells named accordingly, verses 20 and 21. Past offenses, verse 27. And finally, a rebellious son and his pagan wives. I mean, is there worse conflict that you and I have than that which occurs within our own immediate and extended family? I got home from St. Louis last night after being there for a week of advanced mediation training and a conference on reconciliation. I was happily reunited with my bride, had a nightmare last night. I dreamed that we had a conflict. I hate being at odds with my wife. It is the worst thing in human life for me. I was so relieved to wake up and find out that she wasn't hopping mad at me. I'll, I'll be happy to dream about conflict rather than to have it. Esau's choices, and I'm going to say more about this the next time I get to bring us back to Genesis in marrying the Hittite wives, were enormously difficult for Isaac and Rebekah. They made life bitter for them. Sometimes your prodigal kids can make life bitter for you. So there is this curious mixture, and life is like this, isn't it? Good and bad, ugly and beautiful, up and down, blessings and burdens. Even for the faithful follower of the promised offspring of the woman, Jesus the Messiah. How do we manage? How do you navigate? The stewardship, the, the management of a life that's this mixture. There's much to gain in today's text. As always, I have a main idea. Let's take a look. The blessed life requires grasping yet another truth. God faithfully blesses his covenant people that are in a relationship with him as they sojourn through this broken world. Now, sojourn is not a word we use very often. I get that. But that's exactly what Isaac and Rebecca are doing in Gerar. They're sojourning. This is not their home. Not where they belong. They've escaped the famine trying to survive. And Hebrews 11 commends them as it does Abraham. And I want you to look at this passage with me for a moment as I talk about this word sojourner. Hebrews 11:13 commends blessings bearers, as I like to call them, Abraham and Isaac, this way, having acknowledged they got it, that they were strangers and exiles on earth. The sojourner is just a synonym for stranger and exile. I, I've made this point before. I'll make it again. If you're going to manage, steward, navigate a life that has these ups and downs, blessings and burdens, and both bring risk, then you must understand as a faithful follower of Jesus that this world is not your home, as it exists now. You're made for something better. You're made for something else. You're an alien. You're a stranger. And so you hold everything this way, not this way. You don't clutch at life's blessings. 
You have an open hand that God will do as he pleases with you. And there will be seasons of prosperity and adversity, and sometimes both will happen simultaneously. We are seeking a better homeland, a heavenly one. This must be our ultimate preoccupation. We're on a pilgrimage, a sojourn, in a life that abounds with blessings and is strewn with burdens. I see two principles here for managing both in Isaac's story. Trust God through conflict however you can. Make peace in conflict whenever you can. One's vertical. Trust God in conflict however you can. The other's horizontal. Make peace in conflict whenever you can. One, first, trust God in conflict however you can. Let me show you four marks of trusting God through the inevitable conflicts of life. Four marks. One, obedience to God in everything. God first at every turn. Remember, it's entirely possible that Isaac was en route to Egypt to escape the famine in the homeland. But the Lord intercepted him en route to Gerar, or at Gerar, and said, stay put, and repeated and enlarged on the promise blessings. And you can't miss the emphasis in the text. I highlighted it last week in verse 5. Abraham's obedience. Isaac's father gets praised. And in verse 6, Isaac gets the point and does exactly as he is told. He stays put. I was thrilled to reconnect with Ken Sandy this week in Missouri. He's one of my heroes. Wrote the foreword for my own book. He's been a champion for me and whatever God has for me in this area in the future. And as you know, I refer all the time to The Peacemaker, the book he wrote, and the four G's paradigm that he has unpacked as the biblical theology of conflict resolution. We're going through it right now and they're resolving everyday conflict equipping our class. I would remind you of the first G, arguably the most important of them, the most important question you ever ask in a conflict is what does God require of me in this dispute? You maintain that vertical axis. You are preeminently concerned not about what another party is doing, how they're responding. You are ultimately concerned with, Lord, what do you require of me so that I honor you in the way I act in this conflict? 1 Corinthians 10, 38 months. Whatever you do, whatsoever you do, whether you eat, or drink, to all to honor God, all to the glory of God. Let me just encourage us that in pursuing succession, which few churches do well at all. In a pastoral handoff, the threat to conflict 
is very real. We're dealing with a huge, important decision. And one reason why I personally have been proactive in leading this, there are multiple reasons for that, but one, as a leader and shepherd, I want to protect us to the degree I can from this being an occasion for dissension, conflict, disruption in our midst. Pray with me for that. Let me all have an attitude as we continue on, wherever this leads, that our first concern is, Father, what will honor you in the way I as a covenant member, I as an elder, I as a deacon? What will honor you in the way I engage this and the conversations that go on? Now, this is really interesting. Isaac's obedience made him rich. And God may well do that. It's no sin to be wealthy. Where you can get into trouble is how you manage or steward the wealth that God entrusts to you. He gives more to some, less to others. But Isaac prospers greatly. In fact, the Hebrew is so emphatic with an emphasis on the word great. He is abundantly blessed with material possessions and wealth, so much so that he becomes the envy of the neighbors. And therefore, conflict erupts. Now, look at the second mark of trust in God through conflict. And the first, obedience to God in everything. Two, confidence in God to provide. Confidence in God to provide. Here's a pattern here. Even though the Philistines broke faith over You might remember this from Genesis 21 if you've been in this line of study for any length of time. The Philistines had made a contract, solemn covenant with Abraham about a well and an agreement to peace. The moment he died, they filled that thing up. Even though the Philistines did that and broke faith with his father and Abimelech ordered Isaac and his contingent out of town, Isaac does not put up a fight. He doesn't retaliate. What does he do? He picks up everything and relocates to the valley. He reads out the wells there that he rightly inherited, and yet another conflict erupted between the herdsmen, call that one Essex for contention. Scratch that. Take another well. They quarreled over that one too. Call it sitna for hostility. By the way, the word sitna is the same Hebrew word root for the word Satan. Never underestimate the capacity for the adversary of your souls to be behind the conflict in which you are engaged. Put on the full armor. Stand strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. What now? One well down, two wells down. Check out verse 22. He moved again and dug yet another well, presumably far enough away that the Philistines stopped bothering him. Name that one Rehoboth. God has made room for us. What the word means. And we shall be fruitful. Our church has had two massive well-digging-type conflicts in its history. We've had to move on from both of them. 
and in the last 15 years, he has pronounced Rehoboth. He has made a place for us of peacefulness and fruit. We've had our conflicts and disruptions. We are sinners dwelling in covenant with one another. I got bad news for you. If Jim Davis is God's man and you vote yes and he comes, there's, I have bad news for Jim Davis, there's conflict waiting. I'm hoping he comes and let me train him a little bit more in peacemaking mediation, although after this week, I'm not sure I know that much about it. It was a challenging week. When God makes peace for you, in any context, it is his gift and ours to eagerly preserve through all the right means. Isaac is a man of peace. We were hard on him last week. Let me commend him this week. He trusted in God, confident that wherever he had to go in response to his troubles, God would be there waiting for him, prospering his way. He models for us what I had will read from Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Take a look at it again. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? My training in St. Louis involved three hit-the-ground running, grueling intensive days of advanced conflict coaching and mediation training. There was a lot of instruction, but there was also a lot of role play. Four of us at one table, two different mediations where we were given information. The one time two of us were the mediators and two of us were the conflicting parties, and then we flipped. When it finally came, I was in that second party of the mediation to do conflict coaching that one day. You might not have thought that I had had any previous training. In fact, the lady, when she was coaching us and giving us feedback at the end of the training, came to me and said, have you done much of this? <laughs> I said, well, yes. I went, I went home from that on Wednesday feeling really low. And we were going to go and do the role play in the mediation the next day. I was awake at 3 a.m., racked with anxiety. Because I have at stake in this, thinking maybe rehirement for me is a certification in conciliation ministry. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this. And I kid you not, I was awake for a couple of hours, stressing over and wondering, how in the world am I going to make my way with this? If I felt like I did such a bad job. And then the devotion the next morning was, God's work in conciliation does not depend upon you, it depends upon him. It's not about you as a conciliator. Now, that's not an excuse to be sloppy. And I hunkered down and worked really hard the next day. It went a little bit better. I didn't feel quite as bad. But the point was, and hear me now, hear me, fear, fear on any front. We talked about fear of man last week. Fear is an idol of the heart that is about misplaced trust. Where was my trust on Wednesday night? Well, Thursday morning at 3 a.m. My so-called abilities as a conflict coach and mediator. Where does it need to be? The Lord is my helper. I do not need to be afraid. 
So I ask you, where are you fearful? Where are you racked with anxiety? Where are you awake at night with worry? It's that very thing that God wants to use in your life to move your attention from, and this is such a pitfall, self-reliance, thinking it all depends upon you. And to put your place, put your confidence where it belongs, in him. One of the great promises of God's word, I will never leave you or forsake you. And in Hebrews 13, that's in the context of money and possession. You do not need to be afraid. Trust God however you can. Obedience, confidence. Now, three, persistence with God in flexing with circumstances. Do you think Isaac ever got tired? you think he might have rolled over in the tent one day and put his arm around Rebecca and said, do we really have to move again? It's so wearing. And perhaps he did, but that did not keep him. And there is no emphasis or evidence of complaining Grumbling, tempting to be quit. He just keeps on plodding. He keeps on flexing with the twists and turns, everyday developments, one conflict after the other. <laughs> the lady who did the devotional yesterday or the plenary in the final session said, I've got three things to share for you after having been through this conference and this training. Number one, you're going to go home and you'll have homework. I found in my email box a request for mediation from some parties in my relational sphere. Conflict. Deal with it. You never, ever escape it one level or another, until Jesus fixes this whole thing. We're constantly dealing with that reality. The question is how? This is why we have a culture of peace at Orlando Grace, and we teach about it and emphasize it. It's in our core value. Conflict is a trial that God gives you for multiple reasons your own spiritual growth and to love and serve others and glorify him. And he says you should be thrilled. James 1, 2 to 4, count it all joy. I'm so far from that as an inherent peace faker who sees conflict and runs for his life. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Why does God have to be so fond of perseverance? The only way to make it happen is to test you. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Paul chimes in in Romans 5, 3 to 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. So counterintuitive. Is it not? A way to do hardship and conflict. Rejoice, count it all joy. If there is something I have learned over the last four years in which there have been blessings, no doubt, but so much pain, suffering, and loss, and some very difficult conflict, 
is how much God wants me to learn staying power. How much he longs to build into me perseverance. One of my heroes from the past on that front is William Wilberforce, the great British statesman who fought for years for abolition of the slave trade in England. There was one night he was discouraged in the early 1790s after he had suffered another defeat in his decade-long battle. Tired and frustrated, he opened his Bible and a slip of paper fell out. It happened to be a letter from Reverend John Wesley. Something he wrote to Wilberforce shortly before Wesley died. He had read it before, he read it again. And I quote, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. Obedience, confidence, persistence. One last mark. Trust God however you can in conflict. Reverence for God in response to his care. A reverence for him. Isaac moves again in verse 23. Off to Beersheba, known for the water of its well from Abraham's time, must have been God, I guess, because he shows up in verse 24, a theophany, an appearance of God, and he reassures Isaac, fear not, for I am with you. How many times do you and I need God to show up and just say, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Great, central, needed promise of the Bible. Fear not. I'm with you. Once again, blessings are promised. But now watch what Isaac does in verse 25. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. That should be really familiar language. Abraham, Isaac's daddy, did it all the time. Wherever he went, God showed up, built an altar where he would do sacrifices and pray, called on the name of the Lord. Those are responses to God's revelation. And get this, they are public. Now, Isaac didn't erect a sanctuary and build an altar in concealment. It was out in the middle of the field, on the road, for all to see. He's acknowledging publicly God's goodness to him and his need for mercy by his worshipful ways. That 
listen to me, that's what you did this morning by getting in your car and driving here. At the time of the week when the traffic is at its least, right? You hit the road to come here when you could have been worshiping at so many other idols, so many other altars of sacrifice, said, now I will remember God's mercy and I will worship at a church and remember who I am in Christ because of his sacrifice. There's no need for us to make sacrifices other than the living sacrifice of our own bodies a reasonable worship unto him because of Christ's sacrifice. And your regular, ongoing commitment, this is one of the reasons why corporate worship and gathering with God's people and being a member of a covenant community is so important. It's a way you build an altar in the community indicating your beholding ways to the mercy of God in your life. But you are doing something more in this. Just as when we walk at Blue Jacket Park in two weeks, we will do. And I am beholding to commentator Sidney Brydonis on this part. I will read it to you. Abram, he's now talking about Abram's altar building, but Isaac is following in his footsteps, sees the Canaanites worshiping their false gods at the sacred shrines. And within sight of these, she builds altars to the one and only true God, the Lord. In other words, Abram claims this land for the Lord. At key locations, we might say, he raises the Lord's flag of ownership. This is the Lord's country. This is where the Lord is king. By building altars to the Lord, Abram dedicates this land to the worship and service of the Lord. In this land, the Lord will be worshipped and obeyed. And then, writing us, quotes John Calvin, the reformer, writes perceptively, Abram, quote, endeavored as much as in him lay to declare to God every part of the land to which he had access and perfumed it with the odor of faith. Close quote. Nothing thwarts God's blessing in the life of a sojourner who trusts in him through conflict however he can. Obedience, confidence, persistence, and reverence. Second, make peace in conflict whenever you can. All this blessing gets the king's attention. He comes with some others. Seeking to reconcile. And Isaac balks. Did you see it in verse 27? Why have you come to me? He speaks the truth to him. Why have you come to me? Seeing that you hate me. And have sent me away from you. There's this thing. From the past that we have to deal with. I mean, I don't blame him, do you? But the king's plea in verse 28 softens Isaac. So obvious God is with you, man. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But now, look at Isaac's astonishing behavior in Genesis 26, 30 to 31. 
talking about keeping the promises of forgiveness, the fourth one won't allow this to make any difference in our relationship. He made them a feast. <laughs> Threw him out. They've come back, sought to reestablish a treaty of peace. Here's how you acknowledge forgiveness. A feast. And they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. Talk about forgiveness. Is, is that your disposition in a conflict when someone comes, albeit imperfectly, and seeks to work it through and says those healing, marvelous words, will you forgive me? Is that, is that your disposition? Or you hold on to resentment? And let that become a root of bitterness that poisons you, not the other person. Peacemaker Ministries, they are fond of saying when they have to do confession and forgiveness and somebody asks, will you forgive me? The response often is, I joyfully forgive you. I, I enthusiastically forgive you. Now they know that there are times where wounds and offenses are so great that some time has to pass. But here is a disposition. Isaac models Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Is that your approach? Still committed to speaking the truth, but eager to pursue peace not withhold forgiveness, not withdraw from reconciling opportunities. How can we do that when we think of how much Jesus has forgiven us? How? And frankly, when an offense is so grand, so egregious, so hurtful, there's only one way that we can forgive. And that's the power of Christ and his gospel. Beholding the beauty, Jesus paid it all. Love never fails to me. Jesus prepares a feast for you every time you come to communion. Why he said, as often as you do this, you don't sit down and have a meal and eat and drink with somebody you're at odds with. The table of the Lord is visible evidence of Jesus' words, peace I give to you. Peace I leave with you. We are not at odds. We're reconciled. Jesus is the great peacemaker. And right now, he is preparing a banquet at the reconciliation of all things in the new heaven and new earth as such as you have never seen. And on that grand and glorious day, he will invite you to be seated and dine with him. Because you're at peace. If you're trusting in what he has done for you. How he has lived the perfect life you should never live. And died for every one of your crimes against the Ten Commandments. And the holiness of God. So that he now calls you friends. And not only will he feed you, he will wait on you. The consummate servant that he is. No wonder Ephesians 42, 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave.
God unfailingly blesses the sojourner who trusts him and makes peace. Our Father, we pause for a moment. And think about how your word is a two-edged sword piercing our hearts. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Have your way in our hearts as we think now about how this message applies to us, particularly any place that we are in conflict, any relationship. where peacemaking must be done. Or maybe we've tried to no avail and we're waiting on you for a breakthrough. We give these things up to you. Lord, we admit our fear. I fear conflict. We need your help to do, if possible, so far as it depends upon you. Have mercy on us, Lord. We're so weak. Give us the strength only you can provide. I pray right now for the conflicts that are in our minds, in families, in marriages, in the church, in neighborhoods, wherever they are. Oh, God, make us peacemakers. Move the lodge in. Show us the lives and the idols in our own eye. Help us pluck them out. Help us to quickly repent. Quickly forgive. Heal the breaches. Show us what each of us must do. Constrained by your love and your great mercy, which never fails. In Jesus' name, amen.